seated. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick up our study here in the fifth verse of the eighth chapter. We're going to look at verses 5 and 6 this morning. But as we prepare to do that, let me remind you of where we were at last week. We looked at verses 5 through 8 last week. And what this passage of Scripture is, is a, we could illustrate it like this. It's Paul painting a picture. He's painting a picture of the contrasting life of a non-Christian and the life of a Christian. And he holds that picture up for us to see as he pens it there. We're going to look closely at the picture this morning. Last Sunday, what we did was we zeroed in on the picture that he painted in those four verses of the non-Christian. We talked about what he said about the non-Christian this morning. We're going to look closely at what he said about the Christian. And so what I want you to keep in mind as we walk through this, just a few key points. And the first one is this that what Paul is doing here in the 8th chapter of Romans is that he started in verse 1 with a propositional truth, a great propositional statement about Christianity, about the Christian. And he said that those who are in Christ, they are not any longer under condemnation. That our union with Christ that takes place at salvation, at justification, that the union with Christ eradicates all condemnation for all time in the life of that individual that has been united with Christ. That's the great truth he begins with. And then for the rest of the chapter, what he is going to do is he's going to validate and substantiate that great propositional truth of no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He's going to do that in a number of ways. We've already been looking at some of them in verses 2 and 3 and a little bit last week in verses 5 through 8. But as we look now into the life and the description of the Christian, we're going to see that truth validated again. So keep that great propositional truth in mind. Secondly, Paul's description here of the Christian is a comprehensive set of descriptors that are intended to be applied to every single Christian. He's not talking about a subset of Christianity or a special class of Christian. Just like last week in his descriptions of the non-Christian, these are categorical statements that he is making about all of these two groups of people. What he said about non-Christians last week, true of all non-Christians. What he's going to say about Christians this week, true of all Christians. And then thirdly, that as we look at this picture this morning of a Christian, that what I'm asking you to do, uh, what I believe Paul is doing here, and so we want to line up with the intent of Scripture here, I believe that what we should be doing is as we look at this picture, 
understanding that what it says about Christians is true of all Christians, that we should use this picture as a spotlight into our own life and we should hold it up and examine it and do some introspection, like a diagnostic tool to hold it up against what we know about our life and say, is that a picture of my life? If this is a picture of the Christian that we're looking at in these great categorical statements that Paul makes, if this is the true picture of a Christian, then I can use it to look into my heart and see if I truly am saved. Because if what is true of the picture and the description is true of me, then I'm saved. And if it's not, then I need to do some serious soul searching. And spend some time before God until that issue right there is settled. So let's look at the picture. Beginning in verse 5. And all we're going to do is pull out the positive statements here in verses 5 and 6. We already looked at the negative statements about the non-Christian in these verses last week. So we're only going to pull out the positive portion of each of these two verses and the descriptors given of the Christian. And Romans chapter 5, 8 verse 5 says this of the Christian. For those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What does the phrase live according to mean? Let me just give you a quick explanation there. The phrase encompasses the idea of habitual domination. Habitual domination. That the Christian person is a person that is under the influence of, under the power of, Dominated by the life of the Spirit of God. Now, categorical statement that Paul is making here, true of all Christians. Now, don't pass judgment on that. Just stick with the train of thought here. We'll give a qualifier a little bit later. But the idea here is that the Christian life is determined by, is activated by, is influenced by, is animated by, is dominated by the life of the Holy Spirit of God. That is the present reality of every Christian, of every Christian in this room. Now, I'm not saying that every Christian is controlled to the same degree by the Spirit as every other Christian. That's not what I'm saying. Certainly there are degrees of surrender. There are degrees of spiritual growth and maturity between different followers of Christ. Just like in my own life, as I move through life, There are different degrees of my commitment of the control of the Spirit of God over my life. There's different degrees that changes, it progresses as I move through my Christian life. But the first characteristic of a true Christian is that they live their life according to the Spirit. Secondly, Same verse, verse 5. For those who live according to the Spirit, do what? 
They set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They set their minds. What does that phrase mean? Well, first of all, the term mind. We looked at this last week from the negative description of the non-Christian who sets their mind on the things of the flesh. And that word there, same word used here for the positive description of the Christian, that word mind is a very comprehensive term. It means far more than just intellectual activity. It includes desires and aspirations and hopes and pursuits and emotions and feelings and interests. It's really a comprehensive term describing a person's life. And Paul says that the one that is a Christian has that comprehensive concept of the mind, a statement related to all of their life. They have that set on the spirit. And then it says, not only in talking about the mind, it uses that verb there to set. And that word here is it's speaking about a decisive voluntary action. So that the person that is a Christian is a person that has made a decisive voluntary action and is living a life with a mind that is set upon what? That is set upon what? The things of the Spirit. What does that phrase mean? What are the things of the Spirit? Let me just give you a concise, simple, but accurate explanation of that. That the things of the Spirit are the things that the Spirit of God draws attention to. The things of the Spirit are the things that the Spirit of God draws attention to. So that the one that is a Christian, that is living their life according to the Spirit, has set their mind on the things of the Spirit, and in that mindset, in that life, there are certain things of the Spirit that the Spirit is going to be drawing attention to in that individual's life. So to that point, verse 5, this is the description Paul has given that he says is true of every single believer. So what I want to do before we move on from this verse is that I want to try and answer not just arbitrarily, but with some scriptural backing, what the things of the Spirit are specifically. That a true believer is going to, through the working of the Spirit, have their minds set upon. So that as you hear this description, and we begin to put substance to it, and color to it, and definition to it, you can begin to say, wow, is that something that is true of me? I mean, if this is true of all Christians and these really are the things of the Spirit that the Spirit of God is going to be working and helping me to set my mind upon, then I need to ask myself, are these things true of me? As I evaluate my own life. So let me give you the first thing of the Spirit. And I think this is in first order. 
preeminent position. Let me show you what Jesus said about the things of the Spirit. And, and by the way, in a, before we look at the specific, in a very general sense, this mind, this comprehensive, that term comprehensive mind, we're talking about all of life that is set on the things of the Spirit, in a sense what that is saying is this, that the most important thing in life to a person that has their mind set on the things of the Spirit, the very, the very essence of life itself, the most critical and preeminent reality is that the things of the Spirit of God, the spirituality, are the most important things in their life. Let me just give you one verse to illustrate that. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's a, that's a pretty radical statement, isn't it? But the point he's making is this, that the one that is truly a follower of Christ, following Christ is number one. Now, folks, I am not saying that their life always looks like that on the outside. But if you could really look into their heart and sit down and have a heart-to-heart discussion with them, that what would come out of that is that the most important reality of their life is their spiritual life, their connection with God. That that is preeminent above all else. That doesn't downgrade anything else. The father or mother or son or daughter listed in Matthew 10, 37, it's what makes everything else work. See, there's no insult in there. It's really what the essence of life is to be about and it's what enables us to live an abundant, healthy life is when we have the number one priority right. So in an overall way that the person who is a true Christian that has their mind set on the things of the Spirit, they have settled first place. They have settled the number one slot and that is reserved for God and God alone, their relationship to Him. Will there be setbacks? Will there be failures? Yes, there will be. That does not mean perfection. It does not mean that there will not be times when on the walk of the Christian life, the true believer will not fall and stumble. And sadly, what happens often is that we wallow in that failure, sometimes for a season. Unfortunately, but sometimes for a season. I'm not going to try to evaluate how long that season could be. I don't know. God, God knows that. I don't know that. 
But here's what I'm convinced of. Every situation like that, what the Spirit of God does in His sovereign power is that He takes even those failures and falls into sin and even the seasons of wallowing in it, he will use it in the future to do something great and bring that person to a place of greater victory because they have experienced that as they come out on the other side. So what specifically If that's the general idea, what specifically are the things of the Spirit? Here's the first one. Number one place, preeminent place, is that what the Spirit of God, if you're truly saved, what the Spirit of God is going to be doing, the things that He is going to be bringing to your mind, making you aware of, first and foremost, is that He's going to be testifying to and exalting the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to be testifying to and exalting the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the work of the Spirit of God. That is what He is doing today. Let me just give you a couple of verses. Jesus said to His disciples night before He was crucified, He made a couple statements that really are summary statements of the Spirit's work, what the Spirit would do when He came. John chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus said to his followers, but when he, the helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, here's what he's going to do. He will bear witness about me. What the Spirit of God is doing on the planet today is that he is bearing witness to, he is testifying to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is all about testifying to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not building up himself. He is a selfless member of the triune God. And what he's doing here is he's always pointing to Jesus Christ. Testifying to Jesus Christ. Second thing Jesus said in John 16, 14, talking about the Holy Spirit. He said, the Holy Spirit will glorify me. You see, what the Spirit of God is doing is He's testifying to the person of Jesus Christ and He's exalting Him in people's minds and people's understandings. He's helping people see and understand who Jesus Christ is so Jesus Christ gets the glory in their life and through their life. That's the work of the Spirit of God. If you're truly a believer, the Spirit of God is helping you set your mind on the things of The Spirit and a number one position is that He is testifying to and pointing to and exalting the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. He is doing that of every Christian. He wants to make much of Jesus so that Those in whom he dwells make much of Jesus. What's specifically about Jesus? I I could answer 
dive into that just a little bit further. What specifically about Jesus is he going to be highlighting? Let me give you at least two things. Number one, he's going to be highlighting the identity of Jesus. He's going to be bringing to mind, bringing to revelation, the identity of Jesus, that Jesus is the God of glory and the son of man. Not sometimes the God of glory and sometimes the Son of Man. Not half the God of glory and half the Son of Man. That Jesus Christ is all God and all man. He is going to be testifying that fact about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are a follower of Christ, that's settled in your heart. I know that has to be settled because I will go so far as to say this. If you don't believe that, you cannot be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is the very God of heaven who married his nature with a human nature, that he is God in the flesh of man so that he could, as God, come and do what he did in paying for the sins of humanity through the flesh of humanity. You see, if you take away the divinity or the humanity of Jesus Christ, you throw out Christianity completely wholesale. So if the Spirit of God is about testifying to and exalting the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, which Jesus said that is what He's going to do on this planet. And if those two realities about his identity, his divinity and his humanity are the central truths that enable him to be the savior of the world than what the Spirit of God is going to do in every follower of Christ is he's going to have that as a part of your mindset. He's going to bring you to that truth and he's going to grow you in that truth. Guaranteed. He's going to be after it. Here's the second thing about Jesus Christ that the Spirit of God is going to push into and massage deeper into your life that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. This is talking about the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Here's what I know that I know that I know. That Jesus, that the Spirit of God is going to make much of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And the reason the Spirit of God is going to do that is that the truth of Romans 8.1 is only possible If Jesus Christ atoned for the sins of humanity, that the only way there can now be no condemnation for those who are in Christ is if this happened. If Jesus Christ went to the cross and on the cross, the Father placed all of the sins, all of the iniquities of the human race upon him. And then on that cross, he poured out his wrath on the son, took the punishment for all those sins out of the life of his son so that all of sin was paid for in its entirety and God's wrath settled so that if you come to Jesus, you don't have to be condemned. Why? Because God has already condemned your sin in Jesus. 
The only way that you could enter into a state of non-condemnation is that if you come to Jesus and have your sins already condemned by his sacrifice on the cross. So that if that is an absolute necessity for the Christian, then I know this, the Spirit of God in the life of every Christian is going to brought that, have brought that truth alive because you can't be saved without that truth. But it doesn't just stop there at your initial salvation, that moment of justification. Here's the other thing that's going to happen. The Spirit of God is going to keep massaging and working that truth in. And that story of the atonement, that story of the great gift of God and the sacrifice of the Holy Son of God, the co-equal, co-eternal God, that He's going to, Cause that to grow deeper and richer and more overwhelming and awe-inspiring and humbling in your life. It's never going to get old. You're going to wonder at the cross for the rest of your life if you're truly a Christian. Because the Spirit of God is testifying to and glorifying the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he doesn't testify and glorify those two realities, his identity and his atonement, then you can't even be saved unless you've come to grips with those things. So that's one of the things of the Spirit that the Spirit of God is going to have the mind of the believer set on. That the true believer is going to, by a decisive voluntary action, set their minds on. Here's a second truth, second characteristic of the Christian life. that there is going to be a growing application of God's truth to life. A growing application of this truth right here to life. You see, this is another thing that's going to be, I believe, is toward the top of the list on the, quote, things of the Spirit. Is a growing application of the truth of God to life. You see, it is the Spirit of God that breathed divinely inspired the writers of Scripture to write what they wrote. And then the Word of God that He divinely inspired to be written and preserved and passed down is the very instrument that the Spirit of God uses and is using right here this morning, right now, to sanctify, to grow, to change the life of the believer in increasing measure. It's what he uses. Therefore, if your mind is set on the things of the Spirit, and this is the tool by which the Spirit of God uses to grow you in your Christian life, then I know that I know that this is going to be a part of your mindset as a believer. It has to be. It's what the Spirit is doing. You see, all Christians are indwelt by one Spirit, the very same Spirit, and all Christians are ultimately the people of one book. It's the only divinely inspired book there is. Thirdly, 
This is true of all Christians. There is growing intimacy with God. I'm not going to spend much time to unpack this one, but it's a relationship, folks. It's not a religious relationship. And the entire purpose of this book right here is it's not about laws and precepts and rituals and it's about a God, the God. It's given so that you could know that God, not of him, but know him in experiential reality. And so this truth right here is going to help the believer as the spirit of God helps apply the truth. Then I know that what is true in the believer is going to be a growing relationship with God. Because he who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion. Not may carry it on, not can carry it on, not most of the time carries it on, but will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Number four, this is true of the Christian. Paul's description here is part of the reality that there's a growing recognition and hatred of personal sin. That's one of the things the Spirit of God is doing. I know He's doing that. You see, the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the devil's works. And the Spirit of God is exalting and testifying to Christ. Sin in a believer's life is in opposition to the goal of the Christian life, which is holiness, Romans chapter 8, verse 4 that we talked extensively about the last two times that we looked at this. So what is going to be happening, one of the, quote, things of the Spirit is that as a person matures in their Christian life, what's going to be happening is that they're going to come to a deeper and deeper understanding of their own sin and hatred of their own sin. It's like the path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter to the full light of day. And you know what happens as the light gets brighter and brighter? It penetrates deeper and deeper. And the individual, the Christian, sees further and further into the depths of their own depravity. I believe that's clearly a biblical concept. What did Paul say of himself? That he was the what of sinners. He was the chief of sinners. You read some of the great men of God of history. I mean, I mean the top shelf men of God like Jonathan Edwards, greatest American theologian that ever lived, the one whose preaching sparked the great awakening. Listen to him talk about his own depraved nature. It's the fuller understanding and growth in God, that number three, that relationship with God grows. And as we see God more and the truth of God gets brighter, it shines deeper into our life and we realize more and more our sin and we hate it. We're not satisfied with it. There will be a holy dissatisfaction of sin in your life. And the Spirit of God, one of the things of the Spirit is He'll be identifying that in your life. Not to condemn you, but to grow you. So that that is eradicated. And then number five. That another truth about the Christian life is that there's going to be a growing love for the people of God. Growing love for the people of God. It's as simple as this. The more you get to know God and grow in God, you love what he loves. 
The more you love God, the more you love what he loves. What does God love? He loves his people. He loves his people. The Spirit is working at helping you to develop the love of God. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And those who are walking according to the Spirit can be fulfillers of the law through the power of the Spirit. It says in the New Testament that talking about Christians, that we as living stones are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That we, here's the work of the spirit of God. He is taking you and me as followers of Christ and he is building us together. Do you hear that unity there? He is putting us together with other believers to become a temple in which God dwells by his spirit. You see, a part of what the spirit of God is going to be doing in the life of the true Christian that has his mindset on the things of God is there's going to be a growing understanding of the need to be connected to the body. To be built together. Let me give you our context here. To be in a life group. Not to just come and do a hit it and quit it on Sunday once a week. When it's convenient. But to engage life. With other believers. To come alongside them. And follow all the one another's of scripture. If you ever have, you have a good Bible search program. Just go in and type. Put quotes and type one another. And you will get pages and pages of biblical instruction about what you are to do with one another. And what do you have to do in order to do the biblical injunctions of one another? You have to be with one another. You have to be connected. It's the plan of God. There is no independent Christian life. There is only interdependent Christian lives. That's the picture, just a part of it from verse 5. Let's go to verse 6. What else is true of the Christian? He says in Romans 8, 6, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Two possible ways to read this. I'm going to give you the way that I think is in error first, but seems like it on the surface, and then what I believe is the truth. Here's one way. That this is Paul saying that to set the mind on the things of the Spirit results in life and peace. That you set your mind on the things of the Spirit and as you do that, something is produced. And what is produced is life and peace. Now we could just look at the linear development You understand what I mean by that? The flow of the verse from beginning to end, the kind of the chronological uh, lineup of words and say, yeah, what we've got first of all is setting the mind and that what we have at the end is life and peace. So there's first the setting of the mind resulting in the life and peace at the end. I don't think that's what Paul is saying at all. A couple reasons why I think that's doing violence to the text here. Number one is that the context of all that Paul has been saying completely disagrees with that. Completely disagrees with that. I am, I'm talking about this passage here. I'm not saying, I am not saying that the more and more that you set your mind on the things of the Spirit that you don't grow 
in deeper and deeper life. Of course you do. More and more abundant life. The more you line your life up to the truth of God's word, it's a more abundant life. Yes, I think that's true. It's a part of the sanctification process. But that's not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here is exactly the opposite order. I believe he's saying that the one that is truly alive, the one that is truly a believer, that the proof of that, the fruit that proves that that is really true is that that person will have their mind set on the things of the Spirit. Do you see that's in exact opposite order? That Life and peace is not the fruit of setting your mind that first comes the life, then comes the setting of the mind. And here is why the context demands that we interpret it, in my mind, this way. Think back to last week if you were here. If not, I think this will be understandable. The picture painted here in this contrast in verses 5 to 8 is about a person that's dead and a person that's alive. A person that is spiritually dead and a person that is spiritually alive. And the spiritually dead person is a person that is hostile to God. Verses 7 and 8. A person that cannot submit to God's law. A person that cannot in any way please God. That's death. And the reality is they're dead to the things of the Spirit, meaning they can't hear and understand the things of the Spirit any more than a corpse can. They can't see the truth of the Spirit any more than a corpse can. They can't feel and interpret the things of the Spirit any more than a corpse can feel and interpret the things that touch it. They are dead. Absolutely hopeless with anything related to the Spirit. And that what must happen is that there must be a regeneration. There must be new life given. And that new life manifests itself in some way. And the way Paul is saying that it manifests itself is that when that person has become alive spiritually and they're now alive to spiritual things, they can see them, they can hear them, they can sense and touch them, that when that happens, then that person sets their mind on the things of the Spirit. And the setting of the mind is the manifestation that life has truly happened. Now, I think I can show you that very clearly by looking at a little three-letter word that's repeated five times in verses 2 to verse 7 or 8 here in Romans I hope I don't <clears throat> I try to do this extemporaneously first service outside of my notes and kind of stumbled all over the place. I knew what I was thinking, but I couldn't seem to get it out very well. But let me try it here. You see, the word for, let me just show you where it's found. Look, if you, if you have your Bibles open there, look at, look at Romans 8. Now, I'm reading out of the ESV. It might be because of uh, in your translation. But verse 2 starts with 4. Verse 3 starts with 4. 
Verse 5 starts with 4. Verse 6 starts with 4. And verse 7 starts with 4. So this entire passage in those eight verses is interwoven and linked together by these five statements of four, which mean because of. Because of. So that it works like this. If verse five makes a statement of truth and then the beginning of verse says four, it means because of and then verse 6 states the truth. What Paul is saying there is verse 5 is possible because of verse 6. That you have this truth in verse 5 because of this truth in verse 6. So which one really comes first chronologically? Verse 6. Verse 6 makes verse 5 possible. And five times down through this text... We have five times the word for or because of. So that if you want to read it in a linear fashion, in a chronological order, you start at verse 8 and you work back to verse 1. That that's really the sequence of events. So let me try to show you what that sequence is now in these eight verses. It is this, starting at the end, that a person prior to being a Christian is a dead person is a person that absolutely has no ability to line up with the word of God. They cannot submit to the truth of God. In fact, they are hostile to him and can't please him in any way. That's where it starts at the end in verse 7 and 8. Now let's try to backtrack through the truth in a chronological fashion about the reality of the Christian and what Paul says here, highlighting these words for. In verse 6, the first mention coming backwards of the Spirit, verse 6, it says this, that here's the first thing that happens, that the Spirit gives life. The Spirit comes to the person that is dead, absolutely shut out from the life of God, totally incapable of understanding any spiritual reality, incapable of responding to God. They are absolutely dead spiritually in all of their senses. And what has to happen is that the Spirit of God has to come to that person and make them alive. They have to be regenerated. They have to be woken up so that all of a sudden, Oh, there is the truth. I never saw that before. Jesus is the Savior. He did this for me. I have faith to believe in Him. That's regeneration. That's a waking up, a making alive. Verse 6. And then because of that truth, verse 5b is true. And verse 5b is this. That once that person has been made alive from death to life, that the manifestation of that life, the external visible proof of that is that their mind is going to be set on the things of the Spirit. Why? Because it's a new spiritual life. They were dead to it before, but now, oh, there's life. And what does life do? It always shows itself, doesn't it? Doesn't life always show? What about an infant? What does an infant desire and crave right out of the womb? Mama's milk. 
That's a manifestation of life. That's not life. It is the proof that child is alive. They have a desire, a craving for, a longing for. If you're born again, if you're given new life, there's going to be a desire that's formed. The new birth is going to develop a new desire in your life. And what's going to happen is your mind that is now alive spiritually is going to be oriented to the spiritual reality of life. That is the setting of the mind. Let's go to step three, verse 5a. So those who are alive, step one, and have their mind set on the things of the Spirit, step two, here's step three. They, I'm going to look it up. I think they live, does it say they live according to the Spirit? Yes, for those who live according to the to the flesh, set their minds on the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So the next sequence, the third step from the back to the front is that they, having set their mind on the things of the Spirit, they begin to live that way. Their life begins to show external action that their mind is set on the things of the Spirit so that they begin to live according to spiritual reality. Let's take the fourth step. Verse 4b. Verse 4b says that by living according to the Spirit, what do they do? They walk according to the Spirit. There is tangible practice. And then verse finally, verse 4a. And what happens in verse 4a is that they are fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law, which is the goal from the beginning, which is the reason God sent his son, not just to save you from the guilt and hell. He saved you to make you holy. He saved you so that you would live a holy life, giving glory to God, both yes in heaven, but right here and now. And then verse 2 and 3, they are just giving you the basis behind which that can happen, the work of Christ. But verse 2 starts with 4, pointing to verse 1, which is this. Here's coming all the way back to the beginning. That the one that is living a life in fulfillment to the law has no condemnation. Has no condemnation. So every one of those steps in linear sequence is that a dead person as an enemy of God, a hostile to God, unable to submit to the law of God, uh, completely unable to please God in any way, is made alive by the Spirit. And that life is manifesting itself by the fact that once they are alive, they set their mind on the things of the Spirit. And because they're setting their mind on the things of the Spirit, they begin to live according to the Spirit. And as they live according to the Spirit in the day-to-day, they're actually walking in the truth, doing the truth. And as they're doing the truth, what they're doing is they are fulfilling the law of God. And that is a life without condemnation. That's what Paul is saying in this incredible picture of the Christian reality. So that what does that tell us? It's all of God because if it didn't start back here with a dead person absolutely hostile to God, unable to please Him in any way, being having 
the Spirit of God come and arrest their life and wake them up and set them on the path and give them a spiritual mind and a life according to the Spirit there and the power to live it, there would never be a person living according to the truth of God so that all of this is of God. Through the working of the Holy Spirit based upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand that sequence? This is all about the person and power and work of the Holy Spirit, all based upon what Jesus Christ has done in his life and his death and his resurrection. So that there is no condemnation for those who are in the life of Christ. And only those who are in the life of Christ. That happens at salvation. That happens at the moment of justification. The Spirit of God baptizes you into Christ. And at that moment, you are placed into the life of God. You actually share the life of God. You actually become a partaker of the divine life of God inside of you. That's the Spirit living by the Spirit, according to the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, so that the things of the law begin to be fulfilled in your life. Why? Because you're focused on the law? No. No, no, no. Because you're focused on Jesus walking in the power of the Spirit. Now, qualifier and conclusion. I already mentioned basically the qualifier, but Let me just say it again. This does not mean that there are no mistakes and that the Christian life is perfect. Not at all. It doesn't mean that. Yes, we can stumble. Yes, we can fall. Sometimes for a season. Sometimes for an extended period of time. But here is what I am absolutely convinced will be true, that when the full story of eternity is told, that here's the picture we're going to see, that the general tenure and direction of the life of every believer is going to be a life moving toward the things of God. Stumbling along the way, yes. At times, seasons of wallowing in the sin, yes. But the general course and movement and direction from beginning to end is going to be toward the things of God. That's the promise and the work of the Spirit of God. So that with that picture in view, can you hold that up to your life and say, that's me. Not perfect by no means. Failures, absolutely. Seasons of wallowing in my failure and sin, yes. Unfortunately, yes. But here is what is true. Here's what is true. My mindset moves toward the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's definitely true. Secondly, I'm growing in my application of God's truth. Thirdly, my relationship with God is growing as I, in His truth, get to know Him more. Fourthly, as I do that, I am beginning to love the things that God loves so that I love the people of God more. And then finally, I'm 
developing a deeper understanding of and hatred for my own personal sin. That's going to be true in the life of the believer. I believe true in some degree, not all in the same degree, but in some degree in the life of every believer. So if the goal is Romans 8, 4, that the law would be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If that's the goal, if that sanctification, that growth in holiness is the purpose, then what is the way that I can participate with the Spirit of God who is working to get that accomplished in my life. Here is what I believe. If you could take away a truth, it's this. Here's what I believe is how you can participate with the Spirit of God so that that happens. Is it that you set your mind and your heart and your intentions and your uh, vigor on the law and try to obey it? No, it's that you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and you focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and you get to know the Lord Jesus Christ and you seek to understand Him more deeply on the pages of His truth. And as you do that, what the Spirit of God is going to be doing is He's going to be growing you in the character of Christ and giving you the heart of Christ and letting your hands and feet be the hands and feet of Christ and helping you see things like Christ and helping you think like Christ. There's going to be a growing in life of all of those things if you are focused on the person of Christ, seeking to grow in that, cooperating with the Spirit as this truth about Christ right here is applied. So I don't know where you're at. What's the Spirit of God saying to you as you hold up that picture? Do you say, yeah, that's my life. Not perfect, but I'm moving there. Or do you say, no, that's not me. It's been a religion to me. It's been checking off the do's and the staying away from the don'ts and doing my spiritual duty. That's not salvation. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a radically new life out of total and complete death that manifests itself in the ways that we've just explained. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Father, and the deep stuff today Thank you for your truth, O 